0: Hello Sotans and welcome to SOTA, that SOTA means state of the arts. Uh, My name is Jason McKenzie and I am one of the people who host this podcast.
1: And my name is Sarah Kensler. I am the other people who host this podcast.
0: And today um, I wanted to share with you all something that I recently learned more about. Um, I took a class through the Nodi Center Uh, which is a great educational resource. They have lots of classes that you can take online that have to do with the arts, and they're reasonably affordable, and they are also, they have just a COVID discount of 20% too. So I jumped on that because I wanted to learn more about accessibility in curating, which is the class that I took. And I just wanted to share with you all some of the things that I learned through that class because Sarah and I are still pursuing this goal of trying to educate ourselves, um, you know, to be more inclusive and aware uh, of people who have experiences other than our own. Yeah. Yes. And so I, the, the person who I learned this from, his name is Sean Lee and he's the director of programming at Tangled Art and Disability. And that is a, uh, Look, it's located in Canada, I believe Toronto. And Tangled Art is a nonprofit um, and forum for creative and artistic excellence that serves as a leader, catalyst, and resource for bringing together professional artists, emerging artists, and arts and cultural organizations and a diverse public. So definitely look them up. They've got a lot of awesome programming.
1: I have a question. What's up? Um, What do you mean when you say accessibility in curating?
0: So obviously you and I have talked about access a lot on this podcast before. Like recently we had um, an episode on language in the art world and how the, and how um, academic language, you know, is, you know, reduces access. And we also have an episode on, uh, neurodiversity that, you know, improves access in museums. So there is a lot of different ways to think about access. Um, here, this, this class that I took, uh, really focused on physical and mental disabilities. And how they affect uh, artists and those viewing the arts. And I'm going to go through with some definitions that were provided through this class. And also, um, you know, kind of explain more of, uh, you know, some different communities that often don't get represented in the arts. Or, you know, don't get considered in the audience as well.
1: Okay, so this is audience consideration when you are creating materials, speeches, etc., for arts related things.
0: As well as for the artists themselves that you would be working with as an arts administrator of some sort. Excellent. Yes. So what I really liked uh, just right off, and this was a new experience for me, is that when we were on Zoom and introducing Everybody, uh, and we were people from all around the world. Nodi Center is located in Berlin, and the teacher was from Toronto, and we had people from, I think, all continents who were in this class. Um, and one of the protocols of the class, he said that um, all of the text, class text, were going to be in size 18 at least. Um, And that also for us, when we did presentations, that also needed to be a standard as well. So nothing smaller than 18, um, just as a, you know, good visual size for text for someone to read. Um, And then all images and text will contrast strongly with the background colors. So just to make sure that for anybody who, you know, uh, perceives color and tone differently, um, or, you know, just needs a little help, uh, or just needs like to be directed to a focus, you know, the the contrast is high. Um, also, that he would include a content warning before each lecture date. So just if any, um, any images were, I don't know, any kind of uh, topic or image that might, you know, be kind of triggering, or if there is anything like, oh, we're gonna watch this video and it has really strong, like, alternating lights. So if anybody has, you know, a problem with that, you know, skip watching that video, we'll provide a verbal description, something like that. And then when speaking, please begin with your name an end end you're speaking with, that is the end of my thought. Because he doesn't want anybody to be trying to put their thoughts together or trying to get out what they're trying to say. And perhaps they're taking a pause or trailing off or, are you know, just uh, maybe they need a little bit more time to express what they're trying to say um, and doesn't want anybody to speak over anybody else. So it was just after you were done introducing yourself, saying your thoughts, you then closed out with, this is the end of my thought.
1: Very distinct, very easy to follow. And uh, the one thing I noticed about these methods, um, ensuring that every person in your class abides by these foundations for presentation and discussion doesn't make anyone disclose their difficulty in reading or their sensitivity to lights or certain subject matter. It allows for uh, a very self-directed experience that is, um, I can see where they are trying to include as many aspects as possible to make sure that the content is getting through to everybody in mm-hmm. the class.
0: We also had live dictation. Uh, so it was through Zoom and there was, uh, it has an app for live dictation. So you could read what he was saying along the bottom. And mm-hmm. there were also uh, British Sign Language interpreters in the room as well in the chat. Nice, Yeah. And again, Noti's based out of Europe. So that's why it was BSL. Um, And another thing that I had never done before is that when uh, speaking, um, even in the subsequent meetings when we had already introduced ourselves and, you know, on Zoom, uh, if you have it on, it has your name and a lot of people are doing like name and your pronouns, like down in a little box in the corner. You still uh, started with, hi, my name is Jasa." I am a white woman in my mid-20s and I have short brown hair and uh, green eyes and today I'm wearing glasses or something. You always gave kind of a visual description and even I'm sitting in a white room. That's my bedroom. Um, You can kind of see my bed that's blue in the back behind me off um, behind my right shoulder. So you just kind of set the scene for people. Um, and gave a visual description of yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. That's something that I would not have considered doing. Um, although I did just recently attend a talk about um, the experiences of of people who were disabled in, in different ways in life. Um, and one of the things that they did for that talk was that each person described themselves physically and their environment as well. And it really doesn't take that long. It doesn't, you know, take up enough of the time during your speaking process that it, um, it constricts you in any way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I attended a webinar from uh, Decolonize the Art World where all the speakers gave the visual description of themselves, their place, um, uh, and did the land acknowledgement at the beginning, which great, love that. We should also do an episode on land acknowledgement.
1: Oh, yes, please.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a so um, this course started off uh, in giving a brief history of disability representation. And it's really no surprise that the history of disabled people in the West is really intrinsic to this history of being on display, of being visually different, and then also politically and socially erased. And that disability representation has largely been dictated from the perspective of an able-bodied lens. And an example that he gave of that um, was we watched a little clip of the movie Freaks from 1932. Um, so, you know, kind of being back in the day, it's very like un-PC, you know, it's about, uh, you know, people who had physical or, you know, kind of other invisible disabilities that, you know, found, like could only find work in the circus, basically in this um, very, very, uh, what I want to say, like very tough time, very inconsiderate time.
1: In insensitive, insensitive. In, intolerable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, putting putting yourself on display and being um, making money from your disability might sound like a good idea, um, but really it doesn't make your life any easier or any better. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And the and... social status that comes along with that is uh, debilitating as well.
0: And also the fact that at this time there really wasn't a choice. right. They weren't necessarily choosing to be performers. it was just the only thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of performers and artists, you know a lot of disability practitioners, their art is often considered outsider art or art brute. Which we have talked about a lot. Um, you know, it's also called folk art, or you know, generally it has this association with you know being uneducated in the arts, and you know that you're kind of on the the outskirts of of the art world culture. Mm-hmm. And so he also provided this great definition of ableism. It is a noun that means a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti blackness, eugenics, colonialism, and capitalized Oh my God. It's so awful I can't even say it.
1: Capitalism.
0: And capitalism. This form of systematic oppression leads to people and society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a, based on a person's appearance and or their ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and quote, behave. And also noted, you do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. And that is a working definition by Talila T.L. Lewis. Um, And then it goes on to uh, explain a little bit about what is disability culture. Or culture is defined as a manifestation of collectivity expressed through the arts, history, language, customs, and practices. And uh, a definition provided on disability art is, although there is no single definition, (laughs) just pointing that out, uh, that captures disability arts, It is generally agreed that it is a specific arts practice, which involves disability artists creating work that expresses their identity as disabled people. Disability arts carry an additional dimension of meaning that as disability arts practitioners move their work forward individually and collectively, they're contributing to the expression of a distinct quote disability culture with unique experiences and perspectives and shared values. This is also linked to disability aesthetics and disability aesthetics prizes physical and mental difference as a significant value in itself, affirming that disability operates both as a critical framework for questioning aesthetic presuppositions in the history of art and as a value in its own right, important to future conceptions of what art is. And that is our quote by disability scholar Tobin Sievers. And what my course talked about a lot are these five tenets of open access, which was uh, coined by Carmen Papalia. These five tenets are something that you can apply to your exhibition, to your event, to your practice itself. Um, so these are these are a bit long, but I think that they're really important and they were really foundational in my course. So I do want to share them with you. Um, So open access relies on those present, what their needs are and how they can find support with each other in their communities. It is a perpetual negotiation of trust between those people who practice support as a mutual exchange.
1: We just uh, discussed something similar to this in talking about how Uh, Large humanities institutions may have money coming in from the surrounding community, but don't necessarily reflect or have the most socially open access to that community itself, Um, especially larger institutions that exist within uh, lower income communities.
0: Right. And. If you have a certain, you know, Population, or just like a certain representative of people, like different communities coming into your museum, participating in your events. Um, You know, there's really this active, ongoing, and ever changing negotiation between those present of how best to all exist together and how to move forward and accomplish the goal or, you know, participate in the thing that you're trying to do there. Mm -hmm. And it could be different from one minute to the next, from one event to the next, from one exhibition to the next, whatever, just depending on, you know, the, the, the cycle of people and experiences that are coming through the door. Uh, next, open access is radically different than a set of policies that, it is, that is enforced in order to facilitate a common experience for a group with definitive needs. It acknowledges that everyone carries a body of local knowledge and is an expert in their own right. So it's not trying to be prescriptive, like this is the best way to be accessible for everybody and we're sticking to this plan. It's acknowledging that you as a person are an expert in your body and everybody has a different experience and different needs. Open access is the root system of embodied learning. It cultivates trust among those involved and enables each member to self-identify and occupy a point of orientation that is based in complex embodiment.
1: Could you break that down a little bit the For last sure. part
0: Yeah um, obviously people uh, you know people can have multiple uh, you know kind of points of access that that are required or that you know would make their participation uh, better um, and that you're trusting the people around you, you know, you're, you're coming to an art panel at a museum and you're just trusting everybody in the room to be reasonable, uh, and to know that this is a safe space for you to say, where is best for me to sit? Because I have these needs, um, be, you know, based on like AV things that you need and, you know, maybe physical like access that you need, that kind of thing. Um, and that you know you will have the support of those around you to just kind of find you know how to orient your space yourself in the space based on you know just like that there are a complex set of needs that every person has, and that just kind of like one one size does not fit all.
1: Right. This is correct.
0: Open access disrupts the disabling conditions that limit one's agency and potential to fr- thrive. It reimagines normalcy as a continuum of embodiments, identities, realities, and learning styles, and operates under the tenet that interdependence is central to radical to radical reconstructing of power hierarchies in social situations and in our our greater society are you know really built around ableist points of view and you know this this tenant also talks about how, um, normalcy isn't, is, you know, really always changing. It's a continuum and it's intersectional basically. And so, you know, just kind of embracing all of these intersectional identities is, uh, really a key point on how to, change up power hierarchies and just how we, you know, are structured as a society and then also just, you know, power hierarchies in your situation at hand. Open access is a temporary collectively held space where participants can find comfort in disclosing their needs and preferences with one another. It is a responsive support network that adapts as the needs and available resources change. So just again, that idea of Continuism that like, you know, it has a community support aspect. It has that, you know, this is a safe space aspect. You're free to express yourself. You know, we're going to work with what we have here and we're going to work with each other. And to successfully, you know, kind of enact these uh, like non ableist situations, you need to lead with difference, which is to recognize how non-normatively embodied people who lead and collaborate do, do disrupt the normative ways that um, disability artists um, create exhibit program experience and live with arts and culture. So just, you know, be cognizant if you are an able-bodied person of your own ableism and how, how you do things, how you create and administrate whatever um, is different than others who are not able bodied. Um, also remember to manifest access in addition to embodying those open access tenets, manifesting access also means creating and sustaining communities.
1: Just like the arts in rural America.
0: Yes, see Sarah's uh either already already posted episode or to be posted episode. I'm not quite sure where this is going to come out in the in the line of things.
1: It's just going to be a surprise
0: to all of us including us. Mm -hmm. Um, another important point is to enact radical reciprocity and reciprocity is key to, is key to collaboration and making and sustaining relationships. It entails building of meaningful connections, using transparency, honesty, respect. It entails building meaningful connections, using transparency, honesty, respect, and wonder to foster mutual, though not necessarily equal exchanges. Reciprocity is a core value in social justice-oriented practice, including among disabled people and among Indigenous nations across Indigenous nations across Turtle Island. And uh, my professor uh, used Turtle Island to reference North America. It is a, a Indigenous term. Um, I think, particularly from the area that he is based uh, in Canada, that North America is referenced as Turtle Island. Um, Also in like all things and something that Sarah and I have been talking a lot about recently is working in decolonizing and intersectional ways. So take into account how power dynamics are social, cultural, geographic, a decolonizing and intersectional lens in your work can investigate the ways that indigenous sovereignty and disability justice converge, as well as many, many other things, race, social class, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I was thinking back to the time that I've interviewed artists who have worked with uh, Jess from Avivo, that, that organization that focuses on artists with um, with mental disabilities and, and general, other general mental illnesses. And, um, you know, disability is not something that we can always see, mm-hmm. which is, I think some people get hung up on this idea of that changing your font to be larger, making sure letters have contrast, um, trying to think outside of your own, perhaps able-bodied experience. Mm-hmm is way too much work for like the one or two people who come in who might need to use those, those tools. Um, but the thing to keep in mind is that many disabilities are not visual Mm -hmm. and, uh, they're not noticeable to someone who is meeting this person for the first time and only for a short while. Um, and it can impact how, uh, disabled artists are considered within the art world if they're taken seriously or not
0: um
1: if they are uh given shows or not and so all of these things that you're talking about i mean you know they were written by an academic and so they might seem kind of intense and kind of unnecessarily wordy but it's important to parse all this out um once we once we make the curatorial practice accessible for those among us who need the accessibility the most, we just make it better for
0: everyone. Yes. Very true. And on that, I'll just jump into some practical applications that you can consider when thinking about exhibiting your work or thinking about, you know, if you're curing an exhibition, that kind of a thing. Um, so the first thing to consider is the venue. So when working with the venue, the first and ro- most prominent task is to secure a space that is barrier free. So if possible, visit the site in person and work with a wheelchair user to do a site visit. Often venues may misconstrue their space as quote fully accessible when, it's, when it really isn't. Um, some things to ask are, is the room wheelchair accessible? Is there an automatic button for the wheelchair to open the door with? What's the capacity in the room? Does it have proper AV equipment? Uh, Is seating and furniture movable and is lighting controllable? Mm -hmm. And when designing an exhibition, work with the artist to build accessibility in in as many ways as possible and collaborate with disabled community members if possible when building these considerations as well. Another thing to think about, and I think, you know, is one of the kind of go-tos is to consider the artwork display height. So it's particularly good to hang works at lower levels, um, especially if they're meant to be seen up close. Um, And he did note that Tangled uses a 46 inch midpoint, and the gallery standard is 58 inches. So that's, that 46 or 58 means that that hits kind of the center of the piece. So half of it is above that point, half of it is below. And for media art, uh, take into consideration that video work should be captioned and have a transcript available. When possible, work should use open captions. Large print written captions supported by illustration or photographs should be provided for all audiovisual content. And public t- text should be translated into ASL whenever possible, and translations should be as visible as a written text. Another, if you want to go, if you're able to have the budget to whatever, um, to go, you know, even farther into this kind of intersectional access, um, there is such a thing as vibrotactile technology. And what is that, jason I know, know vibrotactile. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Vibro-tactile technology um, can further forms of communication and combine with artistic practice. This type of interactive, multimedia, multi century approach often provides another method of equal participation as an innovative tactile mode and opens up alternative opportunities through artistic expression. So, you know, vibro, vibrations, tactile as in feeling. So it's just kind of opening up, you know, using technology to to open up other senses, you know, adding in things that can be felt, you know, having, um, you know, like I did, I know Mia did touch tours where a guide led people and with gloves and they could feel the, the pieces. Um, You could also, you know, kind of if you're doing a sound work or something, consider, you know, make bringing up that bass, like have some kind of, you know, way to to feel the music. Um, And there's, you know, really sky's the limit on imagining how this could this could be. I mean, artists are great at that. Um, Also, in your communications about your artwork or your art exhibition. needs to be taken into consideration. Ableist language is ever-evolving and led by the community. If you aren't sure what words to use, it's best to ask a member of that community. So a few things that were in my notes for the class is that deaf or hard of hearing are not hearing impaired. Wheelchair user is not wheelchair bound. Blind or low vision is not visually impaired. Disabled or disability identified is not handicapped. And if someone has, you know, insert here, is not a victim or suffers from blank, right? Um, so if you're writing up about your artist, things like that, you know, it, consult someone from that community, or you know, maybe look at uh, a place like Tangled and see how they are talking about their artists. Mm-hmm. Also, Sarah and I have covered this before: uh, to use plain language and. There's not one technique that defines plain language, rather plain language is identified by results, which means it's easy to read, understand and use. So a few suggestions for that are keep your local organization and your reader in mind, use you and other pronouns, use an active voice, short sentences and use common everyday words and just, you know, make sure it's visually easy to read as well. And this also applies to artwork labels and text and the essential information provided in the exhibition label text should be available in large print. Label design should present copy legibility for all visitors and really recommends at least 14 point font. And label information should be available in alternative formats for people who can't read the print like Braille or audio and also ensure that there are clear barrier-free pathways through the entire show. And um, he recommends one and a half meters between all objects, which would be like four and a half feet-ish.
1: I think a lot about space between, um, well, navigation space in uh, curated exhibitions when it comes to also uh, comfort of being close to the works. Um, you certainly, you know, especially with older works, you don't want to um, put them so close to the visitor that you know they're in danger of being damaged. But you also don't want to put them so far away that only you know a couple people can see them at a time. Um, so it's it's I guess it's kind of a it's a difficult thing to navigate. Um you know how how far away works are from each other um, in this exhibition that I'm thinking of, in this exhibition, there were there were statues from um, the uh, the Japanese and Chinese collections, ancient collections that were that were standing on pedestals, but there wasn't more than maybe four feet between them and there was nothing covering the works
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it just felt very precarious mm. and it was meant to you know allow the visitor I think to get up close but there's got to be a balance between you know you can allow a visitor to get close to a work that's covered with plexi or whatever um it's an entirely different ball game when you're talking about a a ceramic that's out in the open that you can just go right up to and that might make people feel uneasy and that could be another um another accessibility issue as well
0: yeah kind of like a barrier for fear of disturbing the work yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's a negotiation between being able to provide a you know fair viewing distance and also not endangering anybody if they're too close and a work falls on them, yeah. uh, that that just really is you know like I think very basic curating and exhibition designing. I agree. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to just make these notes about how to make your events that go along with your exhibitions also inclusive. So again, like we talked about, these barrier free spaces that are close to public transit and then cost free or cost reduced tickets. Sarah and I have talked a lot about um, the cost of entering museums and accessibility in, you know, that kind of financial barrier into these spaces, Um, higher ASL interpreters. Hire childcare attendants. That would be so amazing, right? Yeah,
1: they have it IKEA at IKEA. Like, why not have it at
0: museums? Why not have it at museums? I mean, maybe not during COVID, but
1: oh no, 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 no. of course not. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Um, Provide live captioning, absolutely. Um, Provide allergy respectful food and beverage. Don't put peanuts on things, everybody. Um, And also provide a scent-free space. You know, sensory experiences also include scents and, you know, having um, one way that you can do this is by having, or one way that you can, you know, not, not, uh, you know, contribute to a sensory overload for someone who may be visiting or someone who has some kind of illness or sensitivity or just anything, is to have a scent-free policy. And being fragrance-free involves both the individuals and the spaces themselves. So it means, like, personally, people need to, you know, make these decisions um, as well as, you know, within your space. So, you know, d- like, just have it so, you know, your gallery attendants, it's, you know, no, no scents that are going to, you know, maybe cause some kind of disruption uh, for the viewer. Also, you know, don't plug in those air fresheners in your bathrooms or, you know, on your gallery floor. (laughs) If you do, never think that, just don't do it. Um, Some people have chemical sensitivities and it's really vital to establish scent-free policies and ensure that, you know, there are scent-free spaces to reduce the impact on people's ability to even attend events or be in the community. I also think it's it's really important just to note that there will be conflicting access needs. And sometimes you may receive accommodation requests that will conflict with other requests. One example that was given in my class is that one person attending an event may require that the lights be lowered due to sensitivity, while another person might require the lights to be bright due to having low visions. Uh, yeah, due to having low vision and really, if these happen, you just need to be transparent. So just work with those who are making the requests, be honest about the conflict and work with them to co-create a solution um, that attends to both their needs. So communication, honesty and and openness is integral to cultivating trust and the confidence with the communities you're engaging with as they put into practice a process that is collaborative And which values different experiences and perspectives. So keep in mind that it's not always possible to meet everybody's needs and requests. But, you know, we will try our best. And um, I just want to, you know, wrap this up by saying all of this, all of this, everything that we talked about, it needs to be in your budget. You know, if this if you're an artist and you're working with a space that doesn't have these kinds of things in their budget, put it into your exhibition budget, put it into into the grant that you're writing so that you can exhibit your work and the space, all of the spaces, you know, put these policies in writing, but also. It costs money to hire interpreters. It might cost money to get, you know, more technology in order to, you know, provide these uh, accessible, you know, um, options. Um, you might just, maybe, you need a bigger space. You know, maybe you need to just upgrade, and you know, maybe you need a newer space that wasn't, you know, made in 1900 that you have to take a flight of stairs down into a dark basement to get to. Although that sounds really cool, I, you know, maybe that's just not possible or it's just not responsible to your audience. Um, so these things need to be written in your budget from the beginning. Otherwise, when you come up to it um, and you're trying to, you know, have a project be accessible, you're going to be like, oh, I don't know how to fit in. I'm going you know, I'm going to have to scrap. Um, you know, having this ASL interpreter because I need to afford to pay the artist to begin with, or I need to afford rent on the gallery this month, whatever. Um, You know, you need to look at it hard when you're making your budget for the next year, for an exhibition, for your programming. And if you don't have it in your budget, and you're already an established space, put it in there, like form it, find where you can, you know, reprioritize, write grants for it. You know, this is really something that, you know, you need to make sure that you are, if you want to be responsible and you want to be, you know, uh curating um accessibly, you know, it really needs to start from the very conception and the very, you know, foundational building, which includes the budget.
1: My God, I could speak ad nauseum about this. I have so many opinions. I would
0: love for you to. Um, So
1: one thing that I was wondering, uh, let me pose a hypothetical to you (laughs) that I have thought up just now in my head and is not real. Um, Let's say that there was once a humanities institution, an encyclopedic humanities institution that offered for their patrons both um, electric scooters, and wheelchairs let's say that they had offered both electric scooters and wheelchairs for a very long time and so some people within the community had come to rely on them um and that during an exhibition or a party or something uh somebody who had borrowed an electric scooter ran into and damaged slightly a work in the collection
0: I didn't hear about this. When did that happen? Uh,
1: 2017.
0: Wow. What work? Like what wing?
1: It was, was it in Asia? Is, no, it was in a special exhibition.
0: Oh, so it was like a loan from a different place maybe? Oh, no.
1: It was. Um, and it was a fairly well-attended show too. And I think that that was the problem was that there was, it was far too crowded. Oh, um,
0: freaking on a stick. But anyway, Anyways.
1: so let's say after this incident occurred, um, the, the, the institution was faced with a choice, um, you know, especially if, let's say, especially if the accident happened to a work that was on loan from another institution, then you've got them to deal with. So uh, they decided um, to get rid of their electric scooter program. They, they took electric scooters out of their offerings for accessibility. And so that left them with strollers and uh, manual, wheelchairs. manual wheelchairs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so based on that example, that hypothetical story, how do you suppose that institutions balance the safety of the art with mobility accessibility
0: needs. Right. Well, I think that, you know, a lot of these uh points that I learned in my class that I shared with you here talked about barrier-free spaces. That doesn't mean that you don't put vitrines on your artworks. You know, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, create uh, you know, some kind of lift, even if it's just like a few inches tall off the ground, just to kind of designate like this is the space of the art, you know, Um, and it, you know, there, there are a lot of accessible cues that exhibition designers and curators can, can use such as like a paint color. Um, that kind of, maybe it's on the floor and maybe the paint color around the art is a light gray. And then just when there's like just a boundary of like a suggested, you know, space from the art, maybe that's, you know, a different hue of gray, like a darker hue of gray. And it doesn't have to be anything that is disruptive. You know, it's not like this is bright orange, this is bright blue, and you're looking down and it's, totally disrupting the art but that's maybe like a subtle cue of like okay here is a way to you know safely move around this object and it's you know maybe you don't even notice that you're taking in these visual cues Um, you could also do it with like paint on the wall as well you can do it with lighting spotlighting something making the lighting a certain perimeter around the art Um, you know like we said like putting in mind that people on scooters and in wheelchairs are going to be in your exhibition, conceiving that not only able bodies are going to be in this space. And from the very beginning of your planning, uh, considering people who are, you know, having that have a- other kind of bodily experiences are going to be there would be a great start um, as well as um You know special exhibitions are are often crowded so access can also mean you know um in regards to space less bodies in the space and i do think we're probably going to see a lot more of this um, in post-covid era that's a
1: very good point actually yeah i think
0: that just naturally Uh, for, you know, years, probably for years and years, or maybe as a permanent standard, you know, how many people go in at a certain ticket time is probably going to be really reduced. Um, So, you know, and that also just, you know, uh, that also affords a quieter and uninterrupted Uh, experience for the visitors to be with the art. I know that, you know, visitor services, people probably get a lot less complaints about other people who are being allowed in the galleries with you, just like as an aside. Um, So those are just some of my initial thoughts. Uh, And really, I think just the biggest one is that, you know, people who are making exhibitions and, you know, designing spaces are professionals. Like, a lot of them went to school for this. A lot of this have years of experience in this. Um, Also, it is not hard to find somebody in the community who uses, um, you know, these types of uh, mobility aids. Is that a fair thing to say? Yes. Uh, Who uses these mobility aids um, and to ask them, you know, how to get around and, or I'm sure that there are other organizations that you could call up and say, Hey, we want to, we had this incident and we want to make sure like, not only does art not get damaged, but we want to make sure that no one's embarrassed. No one gets hurt. No one has this experience. Like, you know, they probably forgot about the art. Like when they tell people about that experience later on, they're telling people about how it was so jam packed in there that they, you know, ran into an artwork, they're not going to talk about the content of the exhibition and how, you know, hopefully great they found it. Um, So just, you're going to have educated people, you can reach out to educated people, you can reach out to people who have these experiences firsthand. and it just will not be, I think, that difficult to just, if you just consider other people uh, to, to put their experiences into your exhibition. Well, end of that, rant, end, end of soapbox.
1: Thank you, I love it when you rant. <laughs> did you enjoy listening to our rants? <laughs> you should tell us how, how much you enjoyed or did not enjoy our rant. You can email us at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com. You can also DM us in all caps, if you prefer, at State of the Arts Pod on the IGs.
0: And you know, this whole thing is making me think that maybe we need to uh, find a transcript app that we can recommend people play our podcast through, um, and you know, choose the font size. And maybe there is there an app where you can put in text or audio, and then maybe a like a digital avatar will sign it or something. I'm putting this on my list so that we That'd can be put amazing. our money where our mouth is. So hopefully.
1: I completely agree. Um, there are some podcasts who also have a YouTube channel that uh, provides almost just like a lyrics video, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, of what was said during the, the podcast word for word. So that, that is something that we could look into as well. If you have any suggestions, please email us. That would be super great.
0: And as always, the music is provided by the Indomitable. Sarah, did you die?
1: No, I'm still here. I just, my neck got tired from holding up my. That's okay. Head.
0: That's alright. You know what? Work in whatever way makes you the most comfortable because this capitalistic notion that you have to set up is not where we're at.
1: (laughs) Not where we're at as a people.
0: Yeah.